0: Can we welcome our church family watching in online? Thank you for joining us. Thank you for being a part. My name is Jacob. I'm one of the, the pastors here, and man, I'm so blessed to, uh, to be here with you all. And I know we got some, some students who just got done with an all-nighter this past weekend who are, who are still in church on Sunday morning. So come on, if that doesn't show you that, we got students who love Jesus who would stay up all night and still show up to church. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in 2 Samuel, and um, man, we have been walking through the life of David Anybody getting anything out of this, going through the, the life of David? Has it been, hopefully it's been encouraging to you. Really our goal, my dad and I, our senior pastor, we were kind of asking the question, would there, is there a model in the, in the book, of the Bible, that we could look to and learn from? And we found one. And certainly he's a man after God's own heart. He'd be one of God's greatest men, but he would uh, have a lot, of, a lot of triumph, but would have a lot of tragedy, right? And... Man, if, if anybody knew what it looked like to sin and also have consequences after that sin, it was David, right? And David would know what it looked like to be broken. He would know what it would feel like to be broken. You know, if somebody gave me a, a little wooden car, it was, like a, it was from Lowe's. Now, I'm, not, I'm more of a Home Depot guy, but, you know, if somebody gives me something from Lowe's, you know, I, I'll, I'll receive it and then pray over it and then bless it and then, <laughs> Sorry if you work at Lowe's, I apologize. Um, you know, and so my son here, and I, we're here putting this little wooden car together. It's got like some glue and I'm teaching him how to, I don't even know what I'm doing, but I'm teaching him how to do things and, you know, putting the stickers on it. And then shortly after that, after it looked good, he broke it. And I was like, and I couldn't find it anywhere because it looked like the guy who gave it to me, must've been in his house for, you know, 50 years or so. But so I couldn't find it anywhere. And I'm like, you know what? As much as I'd like to throw this thing away, let's fix it. And so I like got my, my pink toolbox out, you know, and I put it on there. I'm just kidding. I have some tools, okay? I got some tools. And, you know, I, I, we took the glue off because it was broken, and I, you know, pre-drilled some holes and put some little screws in there, and then we taped it back up, and not only did it have some character, but it was stronger than ever. How many of you know that God doesn't discard anything that is broken? Because it would have been way easier for me just to throw it away and buy something new, but what if God said, you know, I'm done with you because you're broken. I'm just going to get someone new. How many thankful that God fixes broken things and broken people? And, and so it's like a little lesson for him and a little lesson for me to learn. But man, God specializes in that. No matter the baggage you have, no matter the issues you have, no matter the problems you bring, God specializes in restoration. Of course, that restoration must be preceded by confession. First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to what? forgive us of our sins and David would learn about what it meant to not only walk in confession but to be restored because that's what God does I want to go to a passage before I pray this is found in the the book of James you don't have to flip there because we're going to we're going to kind of stay in second Samuel but the good news is is that God restores right the bad news is is it takes us some time from when we commit a sin to confess a sin there's like a time period in there. And that, that's the issue that we have is that we have to do a better job at learning to confess as soon as we sin. But I would say we can do an even better job because some of you are very honest and you do a great job of confessing your sins. You do a great job at that honesty. But I would say let's work on your integrity, can we? Let's work on avoiding the temptation. Let's work on defeating the battle for your soul. Let's work on winning at not sinning. Does that make sense? Can we work? Can we do a better job at that? Anybody think they can do a better job at that? Come on, I got my hand raised. I can do a better job at winning at the battle for my soul. And David knows and realizes and recognizes what this is like, this battle for his soul. And there's a passage in James chapter 1, verse 14. This kind of embodies the story that we're about to walk into because it's in this moment where David has great triumph that he sees a woman bathing on the rooftop by the name of Bathsheba. And this passage right here in James 1, 14 and 15 best illustrates what happens in these next few moments that we're gonna read. This says, but each one is tempted, this is verse 14 of James 1, but each one is tempted when they are dragged away by their own sinful desire and enticed. But then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to what? To sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to You know, we're going to walk through the story of David and Bathsheba. And what I do want to say is I'm not here to shame anybody. But my hope is that we learn from this. Say, hey, how how can I do a better job at avoiding it? But also, how can I do a better job of confessing it? Because God will forgive you. We know that, right? God will forgive you. There is hope if you've made some mistakes. God is good. All the time. All the time. God is good. He'll forgive you. But unfortunately, we have to walk through some of these consequences. Man, I do not like the consequences. But let's talk about it. If you've taken any notes, this is real simple. We're going to talk about David and Bathsheba. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for all that you do. We thank you that we can be in this church today and worship in you. And I thank you for just the moments that we have just kind of pause and allow you to lead. So maybe it's time to drop on our knees and just thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done. And would we be a, do a better job at praying consistently, God, we want to know you. We want to see you. But even if I don't, I know that I'm next to you. And so you are good. Would you allow your spirit to talk, allow your spirit to move? And it's in Jesus' name, everybody said in one loud voice, amen, amen, amen. amen. How many of you know that the Bible always tells the truth about people? And unfortunately, it tells the truth about you as well. You're like reading this to get somebody and you're like, wow, this gets to me. Why am I all of a sudden feeling, anybody can relate to that? You're like, come on, God, give me something good. And then you read the scripture and you're like, why do I feel so convicted? Because that, that's what the Bible does. That's not all that it does, but that's what it does. And we find here some of the greatest men in the Bible make some of the greatest mistakes, yet still, through the grace and the mercy of God, have some of the most greatest accomplishments have some of the greatest faith that we read throughout Scripture. Certainly the recording of these failures and their weaknesses weren't condoned by the Lord because we know that there were consequences. But I think what it does is it shows us that in spite of our failures, God is still merciful. In spite of our sin, we can still have great faith. I mean, that's what it looks like submitting to God at times, right? We win some and we lose some. But how many of you want to win more and lose less? Come on. I know I'm going to win a lot, and I know I'm going to lose some. I know it's, it's, it's not like I'm going to have this perfect plateau a permanent perfection until I, in, in, until I reach glory. That's, that's not going to happen. I'm never going to, be, I'm never going to be there. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, So if you think that you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. Don't be so naive. Don't be careful of your self-confidence. In fact, tell the person sitting next to you, You are not exempt. You are not exempt. Now, you don't have to fall into this, and that's what we're going to talk about a little bit today, but you're not exempt. And up until this point in 2 Samuel, David has been a banner picture of what faithfulness with God looks like. Let me just recap, if we can. We're going to kind of jump from where we at last week. We were at 1 Samuel chapter, I don't even know. And I take notes and I I could go (laughs) 19 and 20. So we're gonna kind of, we're gonna jump a little bit. But David defeats Goliath. How awesome was that? There's so much praise. He's he's been promoted. And uh, you think that'd be great, but the person that promoted him now has a hard time with him. And so the king of Israel by the name of Saul chases him and wants to kill him. In fact, David has an opportunity in chapters 24 and 26 to kill him, but he spares his life twice. And David, along with 600 men, who are finding victory still in battle, even with Saul and the Israelites still in their pursuit, it all ends finally in chapter 31 of 1 Samuel. Because somebody dies, Saul. In fact, he's losing in a battle with the Philistines, and rather than taking or getting killed by the enemy, he decides to take his own life. So that's what he does. He takes his own life. And David finally becomes king. It's like finally what you were promised is now being fulfilled. Remember the gap of promise and fulfillment You think what God has promised you needs to be fulfilled immediately, but sometimes it takes some time, amen? It takes some time. Finally, it's time, and David becomes king. But David inherits a divided kingdom, so he only reigns over Judah because Saul appoints one of his sons. But it wasn't until Saul's son dies, and this is 2 Samuel chapter 5, it wouldn't be seven years later until David finally becomes king over all of Israel. And victory after victory. Battle won after battle won. In fact, Scripture tells us that everywhere David went, anything he did, God gave him victory. But how many of you know that the enemy didn't want you to have victory? In fact, the enemy didn't want you to have a long season of victory either. He didn't want you to have consistent victories because if you can have consi- consistent small victories, you're going to find yourself having some big victories. And he didn't want that. And so the enemy is going to do anything and everything to step in your way to cause you to lose your step And fail. And although we may not be able to control the outcome, write this down, I can't control the outcome, but I can control the input. And so if the enemy is going to get me and he's going to do all that he can to drag me away by my own sinful desires, then he knows what the outcome can be. So I may not know the outcome, but I definitely can control the input. David failed miserably in this moment that we're going to read about controlling his input. And we find this in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Read with me. What we're going to do again is we're going we're to read a lot. And then we'll kind of go back and hit some things, okay? So if you got your Bibles, we're going to start in verse 1, 2 Samuel chapter 11. And I'm going to read from my Bible. As always, sometimes the text is a little bit different because this is an older translation of the NIV. What you're going to see on the screen is a newer translation. It says, In the morning at springtime when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained where? In Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And then David sent messengers to get her. And she came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. And then she went back home. And in verse 5, it says, the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, what? I am... Pregnant. and so david sent his word to joab send me uriah the hittite and joab sent him to david when uriah the hittite came to him david asked him how Joab was and how the soldiers were and how the war was going and then david said to uriah this is the this is the cover-up by the way he said go down to your house and wash your feet and so uriah left the palace and and a gift from the king was sent after him but uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all the master's servants, and did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, Haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Why didn't you see your wife? Why didn't you sleep with your wife? Perhaps you could have conceived and had a child. (laughs) Uriah said to David, this is where David um, did not uh, know about the integrity of Uriah, David said, the ark and the Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. David now is scratching his head, thinking, what am I going to do now? Brilliant idea. Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab. This is like, I don't know what else to do. I've like set this up. And Uriah, this should, have been, this should have been it. But Uriah had integrity. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In the note, he said, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. And then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. And so while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Oh, this is it. It's done. My sin will no longer be exposed. And so they catch wind of what happened. a messenger comes back to David and says, hey, Uriah the Hittite died. Look at verse 25, this is just interesting because now David's like, say to, this, to Joab, don't let this upset you for the sword devours one as well as another but press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. And then verse 26, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned him. And after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. J. Campbell Morgan said this, In the whole of the Old Testament literature, there is no chapter more tragic or full of solemn and searching warning than this. You know, there are a lot of things that I love. And I find that a lot of the things that I love, I don't have to search for. They come searching for me. And I find myself indulging in some of the things that I love, even though the things that I indulge that I love aren't very good for me. Can anybody relate you know, it was last Sunday night that, you know, every Sunday night we go to my in-laws. And, man, thank God for good in-laws. Man, I'm, I'm thankful for my in-laws because they are amazing. They're awesome. And we get to go to their house, and they provide free dinner and free babysitting. So it's just a wonderful, it works out for us on Sunday nights. And so, um, you know, they always order pizza. They say, we'll order pizza. You just show up. I'm like, I'm there. Now, the problem is I had pizza for lunch, and it was a late lunch. And I was full. I was miserable. I couldn't even move. My wife had to roll me into the house. And so there I was and they got pizza and, you know, I had to be nice and I couldn't be disrespectful. It's courteous to always eat something. So I had a slice, maybe two or three slices, but I, I was full. <laughs> and there I was sitting on the couch. I was done. I could not move. I, I promise you, there's been a few times in my life where I feel that miserable and that bloated. And I was just, I can't. And then all of a sudden, my brother-in-law walks in with a, a box and I knew what was in that box. As I've seen that box before. It was a chocolate chip cookie pie. That is my weakness. If there's anything that I love when it comes to dessert, it is that chocolate chip. I was introduced at first at Chili's when they had that cookie skillet. Woo! I get those free desserts all the time in my mail. I have to say, in Jesus' name, I rebuke you, and I delete it because I don't want to go and get that. But I'm sitting there, and and the only thing that's keeping me from eating this cookie is that I was so miserable. I I didn't have enough energy to get up off the couch. But something inside of me was calling my name, Jacob. Just one bite, right? <laughs> just one bite. And there I was. I'm like, okay. I'm just like walking over. I'm literally, my button's undone. My buckle's on. Everything just, I'm at my in-law's house so my pants are on off. I'm just, I'm just done, you know? And so I go, one bite turned into three pieces. I tell you, I could not even sleep. Not only was I so full, but I was in so much shame. I was in so much guilt. It was, it was, that, that's, can I talk about temptation today? All right. Because some of us, man, we just are all about craven into our temptation. Let, let, let's talk about temptation because there's something about temptation that's very interesting. Because uh, temptation by its very nature just feels wrong, right? The definition of temptation, if I can find it in my notes, and I may get there at some point. It's never anything good. It says the desire to do something, especially something wrong or unwise. Because it's never anything good that's tempting you, right? It's not like the salad's over there looking at you saying, come get me. And you're like, "You're like, man, that, that salad is so tempting. It's not like we're at a used car lot and we're like, man, that high mileage overpriced used car just is calling my name. Maybe you're married today. You don't ever say, I'm just so tempted to remain faithful in this marriage, right? It's it's usually the opposite. That's what the definition is, something wrong or unwise. I'm tempted to look at things I'm not supposed to. I'm tempted to drive faster than I'm not supposed to. I'm tempted to go to places, and I'm, I'm tempted to, to cheat on things that I'm not supposed to. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just tempted to cheat on this exam. Th- that, that's when it usually happens. And as a believer, can I say this? As a believer, there is the moral law of God that is written and established on your heart so that anytime time this sinful temptation comes, anytime time this sinful temptation is introduced or makes itself known, immediately our conscience says, danger, danger, Right? And so the question is, how loud is that danger for you? Is it extremely loud and in your face, or is it very, very faint and very quiet? And then the other question I would ask is, what do you do? How do you respond to that temptation? If it's faint or if it's loud, do you listen to it and say, get behind me, and you run the opposite way? Or do you step in a little bit more? Do you, do you try and listen a little bit more? Do you put aside all your good accountability and distractions to step in a little bit more to see what's, what's on the other side of that temptation? What happens to David? Not only does he, is he introduced to the temptation, but he does a few interesting things. So I'm going to give you my three points up front if you're taking notes, and then I'll talk about them. Number one, encountering temptation. Number two, pursuing temptation, and number three, embracing temptation. Let's look at number one, encountering temptation. This is 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to read the first two verses, and we're going to stay kind of at this first part. It says, In the springtime, when the kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israel army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Let me just, let me just say that, that verse again, but kind of skip out the, the middle part. It says, In the springtime, When kings go off to war, David remained where? In Jerusalem. All right, let's pause there for a moment. Because let's be honest, when do we encounter temptation? Now we know it can happen anywhere, but a lot of times it's at places that I shouldn't be, it's with people who I shouldn't be with, it's it's also at places where nobody knows I'm at, or driving around where nobody knows I'm driving. I don't even know where I'm driving. It's at the places where I'm with people who I'm not supposed to be doing something I'm not supposed to be doing. Now, certainly we know that God isn't tripping us up, right? Because we know the passage that says in James 1.13, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So God will not tempt you, but God will test you. But God isn't going to entice a person to evil. But notice what the next, next verse says in verse 14, which we read. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their what? By their own. Somebody say mine. mine. By, by my evil desire. So we can't blame, we can't blame God because it's, it's not God. And to be honest, I think we, do, we, give, we give the devil way too much credit at times. We give the devil way too much credit because this doesn't say, oh, each person is tempted when the devil drags you out. No, this says each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own. Remember, if the enemy can already get you there, you've already done your part. Now it's time to do his part. But I think we give the devil way too much credit. Listen, in the, in, in the meantime, kings go off to war. But meanwhile, David... We can, we can only blame the enemy for so long, man. but the enemy just knows my weakness. No, you also know your weaknesses. But I, I just can't, I, everywhere I drive, all of a sudden there's fast food right there. And I can't help it. That's the road you go to your street. You go there every single day. You know it's there. You, it, it's not the enemy. It's you, it's you sometimes, okay? Come on, it's, it's, it, you, can't just, you can't just blame that all the time. In, in the springtime, when kings go off to war, where was David? Man, David was home. By the way, kings go off to war because during the winter, months it rains, it's cold, it's, it's, the travel was tough, so springtime mean, means wartime. But David is a warrior who's won many victories, so it's, it'd be time to go to war, but where does he go? In fact, he doesn't go anywhere. He just stays home. Now, okay, you know, David was getting older. Maybe his fighting days were behind him. But he still needed to lead, and he remained behind. He, he was idle. And something about idleness. You know, idleness isn't just you're not doing anything, but idleness isn't, is you're not having any purpose. You know, you've heard it said idled minds or idled hands are what? Are a devil's workshop. We've heard it said many times before, but listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.13. And Paul's talking to young widows who, who shouldn't remain single, thus falling into sin. In fact, he tells the young widows, if you're under the age of 60, you should get married because it'd be better for you. He says this in verse 13 Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house, and not only doing, do they become idlers, but they also become busybodies who talk nonsense, saying things that they ought not to. Man, I just got nothing else to do. Let me just walk around and start talking. And then I start gossiping, and then I start stirring up issues and creating problems, and now I start bringing up a whole bunch of drama. Man, that doesn't sound like your house. I don't know what does. I mean, that's just just what's happening here in this situation. And and here's, here's the thing. Here's the point. If you have nothing to do, the devil will find something for you to do. If you have nothing to do, the devil will find something to occupy your time. I heard a pastor say it once that the greatest battles don't come when you're busy, but your greatest battles come when you are bored. And look at verse 2 of 2 Samuel 11. One evening, David's bored. He gets up from his bed, and he walked around the roof of the palace, and from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Now, this text would suggest that David was uneasy. something stern in his heart. I don't know, maybe that he wasn't where God called him to be. He was back home alone. Maybe that's what was uneasy about him. And he just starts kind of pacing back and forth. And there he sees a woman bathing. And the woman was what? Very beautiful. Modern time, this would look like David late at night just scrolling through the TV. Nothing else to watch. This would look like David late at night on his his computer, mindlessly surfing the Internet. Nobody's home. And there he sees something he shouldn't have saw. And it's then in that moment when temptation comes knocking. And when temptation comes knocking, imagination usually answers. That's when, that's when things start to go south. You know, just because you get older, if I can just pause there for a second. Just because you get older doesn't mean the struggle goes away. This desire, this, this lust that... You know, you've probably heard the book, Every Man's Battle. Nowadays, we know the statistics. It's definitely every man's battle, but it's also a lot of women's battle now. But you know the stats. You hear it. And it's not just like when I get older. Every birthday, I kind of get like a purity cleanse. This is good. And I get a new level and increase in my ability to avoid temptation. What about, you know, when I get married, it's all going to go away. Did that work? No. I've got one honest person in here. Two honest people here, okay? Me and you. It doesn't just go away. All of a sudden when you think, you know, I'm just going to get married and all the lust, all the temptation, this desire, this, 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 this sexual desire, it's just going to be gone now that I'm married and I have one woman to be with for the rest of my life. That does not go away. David had seven wives and he had ten concubines. David had, that's already an issue right there, by the way, but David had 17 women. Some of you are like, God, just give me two. You know, that's all I want is two. 17 women. The the temptation, the struggle, it it didn't just go away. It it stayed with David. And it's not the temptation I want you to know that is sinful. It's when we allow the temptation to become action. Because we we can't avoid temptation. Everywhere I go, everywhere I walk, I go outside. Sometimes I go to church. The temptation is there. It's going to be there. It's always gonna be there. The question is, are you strong enough not to buy into it? Are you strong enough not to allow it, not not, not to let it allow it to become an action? It can be a temptation, but it's not gonna be an action in this household anymore. It can be a temptation, but it's not gonna manifest itself in my life anymore. It, it's only gonna be a temptation. But the problem is a lot of times it becomes it becomes an action. And we start to pursue, we start to entertain the idea of, I just wonder. Here's what I'd say. When we go from noticing to imagining, we start sinning. You know, I had a lady in the gym one time. I've noticed, I've noticed her. That just sounds weird. She's like maybe early 60s, and I can tell she's like a bodybuilder. And me and my buddy who work out all the time, we avoid her. We just stay away from her, not because she's weird or smells or dresses provocatively, but because she's like a bodybuilder, she will come and she will tell you how to, how to, how to have correct form on what you're doing. Now, I don't care who you are, a woman or a man. You, you start correcting my form, I, that, that is just very discouraging. And that, that is just... <laughs> If if I'm I'm doing something, you're like, hey, knees in a little bit, you know, hands out, just like that. There you go. I'm just like, you know, we were just talking about this earlier. Danny was like, I'll do it for the first time. As soon as they leave, I'm like, I'm just leaving. You know, I'll just cater to what you want. And, uh, you know, I've always had this, sometimes I think about people and how they really are until I talk to them. And I find that they're like super nice and super sweet. Well, she was working out right next to me, and I made the mistake of saying something. And I said, hey, ma'am, I haven't seen you in a while. Now, my wife would say, why are you even talking to a woman at the gym? I have my accountability partner right next to me, okay? And so I said, man, I haven't seen you in a while. And this is what she said. She said, no, that's because you only notice the beautiful women, and I am not one of them. And I said, man, that that is not true. I'm not saying that you're not beautiful. I just, I started to dig myself in. I was like, no, I mean, I just, and this is what I told her. I said, man, I got, sure I notice people. I notice anybody that walks into the gym. I especially notice the people who have no idea what they're doing and the people that, There's just no hope for them sometimes. I notice them, but that doesn't mean that I let that noticing turn to imagining because I got too much to lose. That's what I told her. I got too much to lose. And, uh, you know, when we were little kids, and I think she was just like, yeah, whatever. Meanwhile, she corrected my buddy's form as he was doing something. I was like, "It's, it's so good. This is why I talked to her, you know. But, but when we were little kids, probably like 13, 14, me and my buddies, we used to say, you got two seconds to stare at a woman. And that was it. You stare longer than two seconds, you're lusting. And you can't take a double, double take. Now, I'm not saying we indoctrinated our kids with that theology because I was 13, 14 years old. But we said you had two seconds to stare, and that was it. And if you stared longer than two seconds or you took a double take, then you were lusting and you were sinning. But that's what happens is when we, when we notice, do we imagine? Because this is what separates great men from weak men, church. This is what separates great women from weak women. I know you're introduced to the temptation, but do you step into it? Do you do like David did where you find yourself in a moment where you start? Here's the second thing. You start to pursue the temptation. Look at verse 2. Because he sees a, a, a woman bathing The woman was very, what, beautiful. And in verse 3 it says, and David sent somebody to find out about her. So not only does he notice her, but now he's more interested in her. You know, he's there just scrolling through Instagram saying, huh, she, she seems pretty. I wonder what her life is like. I wonder what she likes to do. I wonder what kind of job she has. Request to follow. Better yet, some of you slide into those DMs and say, hey, I'm just checking out, just not checking out, but just noticing, and I just wanted to say hi, introduce myself. I have no idea whose people are. But here you are allowing your noticing to turn into what? Imagining. And he just wanted to know some more information. Was that really David? So I just wanted to know a little bit more facts about this woman. So he, so he sends a messenger, and the man comes back and says, this is Bathsheba, the, the daughter of Eliam. You know this man. And, and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Uriah was one of his mighty men. David, you know this man. And odds are he probably knows her husband. <laughs> oh, oh, good. Oh, thank God that, woof. I'm glad I know her husband because I didn't want to step into that territory. Is that what he does? No. Because sure, David knew Uriah and probably knew Eliam, but David, deep down inside, he wanted to know Bathsheba as well. He he wanted to know her. Not only does he see, but now he pursues. Remember Joseph and Potiphar's wife? Potiphar's wife was using her royal power, wielding that, to say, Joseph, sleep with me. He grabbed his clothes, and what did he do? You know what, Lord, let me just pray about this, God. Is this your desire to sleep with another man's wife? What does he do? He runs. In fact, he runs so fast his clothes come off. He's just butt naked hauling out. Sometimes, man, we gotta get button. <laughs> Sometimes we just gotta let whatever comes off, and we gotta run. Amen. Job. This is really interesting because Job in chapter thirty-one, verse one. This is what this is what Job says. He says, "I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman." Job knew that God was watching everything he did. Job knew that God was. He knew every single thought that Job was thinking. Job said, I made, I made a covenant. If this is every man's battle, then this is every man's covenant right here. But notice what he says. He says, I made a covenant to, look, to not look lustfully. Remember, it's one thing to look, but now it's a whole other thing to look lustfully. I don't look, I don't look lustfully. I just stare. You know, <laughs> well, you're a creep and we're going to we're going to call somebody on you <laughs> if that's all you do. Because that's what, that's, what, that's what a lot of people at the gyms and, you know, at the restaurants, Anybody anytime somebody walks by, it's just like, man, all they do is, I'm like, dude, your head is about to come off, and, and I, I, can, I can see you. I mean, women, you know, you, you can just sense. My wife was telling me, I can just sense when somebody's staring. I can just, I can just sense it. I, I was listening to this guy talk about the story about a, a husband and wife walking to a store, and this beautiful woman walks in, and the husband just eyes locked on her as soon as she came in. He's just staring. Maybe innocently, but he's just staring. The wife's meanwhile, she's doing her thing, buying clothes for the kids, and they get done, and they walk out. And the wife says, "Was it worth it? All the trouble you're about to be in." <laughs> what, was it? So, so women, you 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 know, you know, but people, you just, man, I just, I just, I just stare. What, what are you imagining when you're staring? Well, you know what? It's the woman's fault for what they're wearing. All right, can, can I talk about Bathsheba for just a moment? <laughs> now, I have no place to, uh, to speak for all men or all women. I'm just going to speak um, a little bit of what I think because let, let's be clear. We focus a lot on David, and, and the Bible strongly condemns David's actions here, right? The Bible strongly condemns David's actions. But people have said, like, well, why was she bathing on the rooftop? Well, the Scripture does not actually say she was on a rooftop. David's the king. Where his place is, he has the highest vantage point to see anything and everything. Sure, he can see every rooftop, but he can also see in most of the windows. So you can't really say that she was on a rooftop bathing. Why was she just trying to seduce him? Or why was she just up there bathing and trying to seduce somebody? But, but can I say this? And again, I want to speak from the heart. How many of you, how many of you would agree, men and women, how many of you would agree with this statement that there are times and situations where women dressed or post in ways in hopes to lure or bait the eyes of others. I mean, yeah. Um, Maybe not me. Maybe not the woman of VLC. Come on, thank God for the woman of VLC who are beautiful inside out. Don't gotta show it. Don't gotta strut it, you know? But there are times where women, and maybe it's unintentional, right? But everywhere you go, not all women, but everywhere you go, it's there. And here's what I'd like to say. Ladies, help us out a little bit. Don't make it so easy to cause another woman's husband to lust after you. Come on, don't make it so easy. Help us out a little bit. Is, is, that, is that okay? Now My wife's like, what are you telling me? I can't wear this or I can't wear that. I'm saying you can wear what you think you can wear. And people are going to look. People are going to look. But just know there are some things you shouldn't wear, okay? I mean, let's, there's, there's a line. Where that line is for you, I don't know. Where that line is for men, way down here at the bottom, okay? So you can't control what we do and where we look. We can't. But there are some things you can control. Even in the church, Paul says to Timothy, to the woman in the church, that they needed to be careful how they dress. Thus, men's eyes would be on them rather than God. Don't. Desperately seek to arouse the sexual passions of men. Ladies, again, this isn't, this isn't the case for Bathsheba, sure, you can present that case. Well, it was Bathsheba's fault. She, she, was, she was seeking, or was she, was she submitting? That scripture doesn't give us those details, but what we do know is that David wielded his royal power and took advantage of Bathsheba. And so, not only did he, was he encountered with the temptation, he pursued the temptation, but here we find now that he embraces the temptation. Adultery in the heart and mind is bad, but adultery in practice is far worse. So look at verse 4. It says David sent messengers to get her. So he first sent a messenger to find out some information. Find out who she is. Find out what she likes. Find out what kind of food she likes. Oh, she's married. Bring her here. Let, let me ask some more questions about who she's married to and how their relationship is because maybe they're like separated right now. I mean, that, that could be a good example. Maybe they're separated. I don't see any, any engage, ring. I don't, I don't see anything Facebook status-wise that says they're in a relationship. Just, just Let's just see. So, so send some messengers and, and bring her here. And you thought at that moment that could have been it when he saw her. You just wish all that conviction came on right there. The danger came on right there, but it didn't. It says that he slept with her and she went back home and the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. He encountered it. He pursued it. He thought that it would be best for him in that moment to embrace it. And he sent her home thinking, man, one night stand ain't that bad. Nobody's going to find out. Oh, but sin has a way of being exposed. Sin has a way of making itself known. You know, David thought he was good. Man, this is a one-time thing. Bathsheba, we'll see you later. And the rest of the chapter is David covering up his sin, perhaps the biggest sin in his life. So he brings Bathsheba's husband, we just read it, back home from the war and thinks, you know, I'll get him to sleep with his wife. But he doesn't do that because the integrity of Uriah was pretty strong. Uriah didn't help. His sin would be exposed. So what does he do? What does he do? He does the unthinkable. You know, it started out with lust, it started out with adultery, it started out with deception, then it went to entrapment, and then it went to murder, because one sin leads to another. One sin leads to another. It just started off with just a temptation that he could have avoided. Just a simple look. Just two seconds, that's all. Three seconds. Can I break up the one second and the other second? Does that count, Jacob? No, that would be a double take that doesn't count. But now he just continues to stare and now wants to know more because his staring led to imagining, which led to lusting. Remember, Scripture says, if you've lusted, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Although you haven't actually committed the action, you've committed it in your heart. Scripture tells us. So David, one sin leading out to another, goes all the way to murdering Bathsheba's husband. To say, this is all, i got to cover this thing up. I'm gonna go all the way. I'm I'm already here. There's already a child coming. And I, I might as well just might as well just end it all and kill her husband. So nobody will know. And, and that's what he does. And nobody finds out. And he has a baby. And it's the baby looks like David. Coincidence? I don't know. But nobody knows. This is so good. And I think some of us we are here in this moment right now. I mean, we are years past our mistakes and sins, and nobody knows. Nobody's gonna married for 20 years. Nobody will know. But sin has a way of exposing itself. And God, come on, God, he sends this dude by the name of Nathan to go to David and confront David. And you could read that in chapter 12. We're not going to read it. We don't have time. But chapter 12, Nathan rebukes David. And he says, what you did was wrong. And I know and God knows. And now the consequences are going to start rolling out for you, David. But David, this is where he recognizes. Come on, thank God at least David realizes what he does and he confesses. This is what it says in uh, verse 13 of chapter 12. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Come on, I am so thankful. It doesn't matter how many years or how many months or how many days. I just, I'm thankful that God allows me to get to that point where I would say, God, I'm so sorry. That takes humility. But that's what God has called us to do. Say, God, I'm sorry. I think I shared this a month or so ago. You want to know how close you are to God? Well, how long did it take you to ask for forgiveness when you've made a mistake? Because Scripture would say it took almost David a year to confess his sin. It took him a year to confess his sin. But but he does. And write this down, Psalm 51. Read Psalm 51, because Psalm 51 is his confession. It's his saying, saying, God, thank you so much for what you do. Let me just share three verses from it. Psalm 51, verse 1. He says, have mercy on me, O God. Verse 2, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Verse 12, restore me to the joy of your salvation. And grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Come on, anybody thankful for the forgiveness of God in this place today? Anybody thankful that no matter how many mistakes you've made, God has forgiven you? God has forgotten about it. He cast your sin as far as the east is from the west. And he remembers them no more. That doesn't mean that God is forgetful. That just means that God no longer uses it against you. He can't say when you get to heaven, man, do you realize all the sin you've done? No, he says, I realize all the forgiveness that you've asked for, and I've forgiven you of all your sins. Welcome to the kingdom of heaven. Come on, that is God. I'm so thankful for God. I'm so thankful he does that in these moments. And here David, a year later, though, is called out. Okay, well, God, forgive me. And David weeps, and David, you know, he, 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 he falls, and he trembles, and he says, God, I'm so, he's so broken. He's so broken. And maybe you've been to this point in your life, but let me go back to the, to the beginning of this moment. I think it's in verse four where David sees a beautiful woman. I wonder what would happen if in these moments where we see, where the temptation is introduced, I wonder what would happen. Not if we just came up with a list of pros and cons, because that doesn't work, right? Let me weigh the pros and let me, if I sleep with her, if I commit adultery on my wife, what are the what are the pros? <laughs> what are the cons? Oh let's not talk about the cons. Let's just, as soon as you start to weigh the options, you're justifying your actions anyways. So what's you can't do that. But what you can do is say, God, what would this cost me? If I step in and give to this desire, and not only pursue this temptation, but embrace this temptation, what would it cost me? What would I lose? But you don't think those things, because in those moments, we don't do a lot of thinking. In fact, in those moments, we are very much less spirit led. We are most flesh and emotion driven, right? We are led by our flesh a lot of times. This is why Paul says there's a battle between your flesh and your spirit. And which one are you going to cave to? Which one are you going to allow to lead you? Is it your flesh or is it going to be your spirit? Because if it's my flesh, I'm not weighing pros and cons. I'm just, I'm looking for a temporary, pleasurable experience. And that is what you're going to get. But the cons, you don't think about those until after. So God, my prayer help me help me think about the cons before. Help me think about what I'll lose before. Help me think about what I'm going to miss out before. God, help me think about the pain and torment that's going to cause my family before. God, bring these things to my attention. And and that can happen. But again, how close are you to God? How much are you reading this thing? How much are you walking in obedience? Because that will determine how clear the cons will be. You know, I heard um, a pastor say back in January of 27 that he carried around a list of what would happen if he ever committed adultery on his wife. You know, for eight years, I served at a church in Boca, and I, for the first two years, I was single. But I had some amazing men in my life who helped me. They kept me accountable, and they, they loved me. They pursued me. They were willing to call me out. They were, they were willing to, to listen to my problems and my issues and all my, you know, 21-year-old single trying to figure this life out, who am I going to marry? And there's just a lot that goes on through your head. Man, I know, God, I want to be married. I have this desire to be married. And that desire out of hand can be catastrophic, right? But thank God for mentors and thank God for wise counsel. Amen? Come on, I thank God for those men in my life. But now when God called me here to serve with my dad at VLC, I realized that, you know, with the distance, I probably wouldn't be around those mentors as much. And so the first thing I said when I got here, and some, some of you men in this room know, because I've talked to you, and I said, God, in that time, there was like pastors falling left and right. We all saw it. It was like every time we turn on the news, it was like pastor fails, moral failure, sexual failure, adultery. And here I am, married now eight years, well, almost eight years, the most beautiful man in the world. I'm saying, God, I'm not gonna be another statistic. That's not gonna be me. I will not fail. And so I put some men in my life to say, hey, listen, I'm not here, I'm not asking you to be here when I mess up, I'm asking you to be here so I don't mess up. Because that's what I need. And maybe you here today, men and women, you need some, some strong men in your life. Women, you need some strong women in your life to mentor you, to keep you from making the mistakes, maybe that they've made, but will protect you. Because I have a lot to lose. I'm not single anymore. I'm married with three kids. I've got a job and work at a church. I have a lot to lose. And so January 27th, this past year, this pastor was talking about all that he had to lose. He said, make a list, pastors, <laughs> make a list. And so I made a list. And I want, share, I want to share that list with you. And I shared it with my wife. And I share it with you one, so you keep me accountable and you keep fighting, me and, uh, fighting for me. And I would say, church, pray for your pastors. Pray for them. Pray for my dad. Is it selfish to ask that? To pray for us. If you don't attend this church, you're just visiting, you're watching online, pray for your pastor. Man, if the enemy can get hold of a pastor and cause him to fall, it'll just be a, a line of falling. And so I, I made a list, and my, I've sent this to my wife, and I want to share this with you. If, again, there, there is so much grace. God is so good. And you don't need to walk in shame anymore. But here I am today saying, you know what, God, I, I don't want to fail. this is what would happen to me. I would displease the Lord. I would drag his sacred name in the mud. I would inflict hurt and pain on my wife, Cheryl. I would lose her respect and I would lose her trust. I would hurt my kids, Judah, Beckham, and Blakely. I would have to explain to them my daddy doesn't work at the church anymore. I would cause shame to my family I would lose trust in all the people that I have ever mentored and discipled. Just think about that for a moment. All the people that you have led, all the people that you have mentored, all the people that you have discipled, just think about how they will view you now. I would also give pleasure to Satan. And lastly, although I know God would forgive me, because he does, I would gain a guilt and a shame that would stay for a very long time. Just, Just go back to that moment with me. Put yourself in David's shoes. There there is something going on in your spirit that says, this is not what I need to do, but my flesh says this is what I want to do. But in that moment, if I can say, God, I've got a list, and I wonder what the consequences would be. I wonder what the outcome could be. And so, Lord, I'm going to do a better job at controlling the input right here in this moment. I'm going to do a better job at trying to abstain. I'm going to do a better job at running like Joseph. I'm going to do a better job at making a covenant like Job. God, I'm going to do a better job. I have to because I got way too much to lose. Sure, my wife may stay with me and forgive me, but I have a lot more to lose than that. I certainly got a father-in-law who would kill me. I know that. That's for sure. He's already told me that. Has so much to lose. You have so much to lose if you're single here today. You still have something to lose. If you're married, you still have something to lose. If you have kids, you're, you still have something to lose. If you're divorced or you're not, you're, you're a widow, you still have something to lose. Do you want to displease the Lord? Do you want to hurt him? Do you want to drag his sacred name all across the mud so people can say, these Christians, it's just a bunch of hypocrites. This is David. I thought he was some righteous man after God's own hearts. Look at what he's Can I tell you the consequences of what happened with David? If he would have known that God would be displeased, there would be an unwanted pregnancy, there would be a murder of one of his mighty men, chapter 12 tells us that his child at Bathsheba birth was die would die. And that's what happened. The baby got ill and died. His wives would be taken by other people. The sword would never depart from his family. One of his sons would rape his own daughter. One of his sons would murder by another son. I mean, Charles Spurgeon said it best this way. God does not allow his children to sin successfully. Are you prepared to face your sin? Are you prepared to face the consequences? Are you willing to risk it all to lose it all for a few minutes of forbidden pleasure? You know, Proverbs ten twelve says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Remember the scripture we read in James 1 14, it said that our sin, once it's once it's been uh, once we step into it, is now it births sin. We step into the temptation, it births sin, and what does that sin do? It births death. So a way to a man seems right, but its way will end in death. But even if we give way to that, the good news is First John 1, 9 again says, if we confess our sins, that he is faithful. If we confess our sins, that he is just. If we confess our sins, that he will step into your sin situation and he will spare you. He will save you. You no longer have the punishment, the eternal punishment, because God spared us from that. Anybody thankful that God spared us from the eternal consequence of separation? We cannot have eternal life, but the consequences would still be here. Oh God, help me think about the consequences. God, help me think about what I would lose. God, help me think about what I I would gain and the issues and the problems and the guilt and the shame. God, I don't want to fail you. I don't want to fall. I don't want to step into this. God, I want to be faithful. I want to be faithful and I want to defeat and I want to avoid the temptation as soon as it's introduced. Come on, if that's you, would you stand to your feet all across this room? If that's you, you're saying, you know what? Man, I want to conquer it at its introduction. Anybody with me? Man, I want to conquer it at its introduction. As soon as it's introduced, man, I'm going, to trust in, I'm going to trust in God. I'm going to hold fast to his word. I'm going to make a list if I have to. I would encourage you today, make a list of what you would lose if you stepped into this. But I want you to know that there is an end to the story, okay? Next week, my dad's going to kind of close this, this story of, of the life of David, and we're going to look a little bit more at kind of the, the, the bad, but there is a good part of David because there was a promise That in the lineage of David would come a Messiah named Jesus. And that still happens. Come on, that still takes place. So God can still do great things. With people who have great faith, even though you made great mistakes, my my challenge for you today is let's, let's win more and let's lose less. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you all across this room. Lord, we thank you for those watching and online. And Lord, my hope and prayer today is that nobody leaves in shame. That's not what I wanted to do. And I know that's not what your word wanted to do. We don't want to walk away in shame. But God, we want people, a church here today, to fall on their knees, to lift up their hands and say, God, we need you. Because I can't do this without you. Father, we need you. And so so we cry out to you today. Come on, we cry out to you today. If that's you, would you just lift your hands all across this room and say, God, I need you. Lord, I need you. God, your forgiveness was back then. Your forgiveness is, is now. Well, Lord, I don't want to always have to step into that because I want to do a better job at finding victories. So God, help me find victory. Come on, help me find victory. God, I need you. Come on, would you just worship him in this place? Father, we need you.